0: The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern-East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au Okay, so uh, uh, let's now come back to the, uh, where we left off last night. And uh, uh, we were just looking at the five uh, khandhas, the five uh, uh, aspects of personality. Uh, uh, subject to grasping, or subject to taking up, or however you want to translate some of these words. Uh, one of the nice translations of upadana, which is the Panchupadana Kanda, is the idea of taking something up. Uh, you, you know, you be, literally, you pick it up and you hold on to it, and that is kind of uh, one of the root meanings of this particular word. Uh, so you pick things up during life, and that is, and then you kind of hold on and you attach and you cling or whatever to these things. Uh, Uh, Afterwards, so so now I want to have a look at uh, this sutta from the uh, connected discourses of the Buddha, the Sangyutta Nikaya. At the very bottom of the first page, Uh, this is called the Lump of Foam Sutta. Uh, This is the uh, you can see the little number there means SN Sangyutta Nikaya, connected discourses. Twenty two is the twenty second collection. Yeah, the this is the Kanda Sangyuta, the uh, Sangyuta on the Aggregates or the personality factors, uh, and then the oh sorry the collection on on personality factors, uh, and this is the ninety fifth sutta, and uh, this particular sutta is quite well known, uh, and is quite unique in many ways. It is unique because it has these five similes uh, for how to regard how to look at these five personality factors. Uh. And uh, this, as often with the word of the Buddha, the similes are often very evocative and very, uh, you know, you would expect this, I suppose, of someone who is fully awakened like the Buddha, but they are very often very precise and evocative. And uh, if you reflect on them, they often have a very deep meaning. It's a different way of approaching the Dhamma than just kind of a plain prose passage. Uh, These these similes often add a lot of extra uh, color and depth To what is ordinary teaching of the Buddha, so very they're very useful, uh, and they add a lot of uh, understanding very often. uh. So um, uh, let's see how this sutta goes. Uh, So uh, we start off here as usual. One occasion, the Blessed One, the Buddha, was dwelling at Ayodhya on the bank of the River Ganges. Uh, There, the Blessed One addressed the monks thus. so Ayodhya is, uh, as far as I know, is pretty much only found in this particular sutta. It's a very quite an obscure place. Uh, I don't think it has been uh, rediscovered uh, archaeologically or anything like that. It uh, kind of remains obscure. Uh, but it's on the uh, Ganges River. here. Uh, and as usual, the Buddha addresses the monks. Uh, this is then the translation by Bhikkhu Bodhi, uh, not by Ajahn You This mendicants is not there, so you know it's not Ajahn Sudato. Must be someone else, and uh, as always, when it's addressed to the monks, it's it's not really. It doesn't mean it's just for the monks. Uh, this is just the way things were done at that time. The kind of the most senior person present would be the person who was addressed, uh, and, uh, and the monks would often be the most senior ones because they were the first disciples of the Buddha, and for that reason, they are usually uh, the people addressed in this way. But everyone is really included, and I think that's an important point to be to know. It's interesting, You sometimes you read the suttas, uh, and you read different versions of the same sutta, like the Satipatthana Sutta, for example, and you read the Satipatthana Sutta in Pali, and it's addressed to the monks. Uh, you read the Satipatthana Sutta in the uh, Chinese translation, uh, which is, comes from the Sarvastivadin lineage, uh, so it's a different school of Buddhism, uh, and it's addressed to monks and nuns, bhikkhus and bhikkhunis. Uh, yeah? So that's interesting. It shows you how these things have been edited slightly differently depending on time and place. Uh, and uh, what it means is that it's not a fixed kind of category that we are, you know, it's addressed to a fixed uh, group of people. Uh, so now let's have a look at these uh, similes, uh, similes for the five kandas. Uh, monks, su- suppose that this river Ganges was carrying along a great lump of foam. Uh, A man with good sight would inspect it, ponder it, and carefully investigate it, uh, and it would appear to him to be void, hollow, and insubstantial. uh. For what substance could there be in a lump of foam? So too, monks, whatever kind of form there is, uh, whether past, future, present, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, A monk inspects it, ponders it, and carefully investigates it. uh, And it would appear to him to be void, hollow, and insubstantial. Uh, For what substance could there be in form? So uh, here we come back to the first kanda again, the rupa kanda. And uh, the uh, idea here is the uh, uh, similarity between, of course, the rupa kanda and the lump of foam. Yeah, lump of foam is, uh, uh, if you look at the lump of foam and you uh, uh, look, it's obviously it's composed of bubbles. Yeah, that's what foam really is, it's like this m- mass of bubbles kind of holding together. And if you look at it carefully, you will see that it's always kind of shape-shifting. Always uh, b- some bubbles are kind of being created, some bubbles are bursting, and it's always kind of moving around, shifting shape until it eventually gradually it disappears altogether but it takes a while The lump of foam is fairly stable yeah it can kind of be around for quite a while eh? and uh, this gives you an idea what the body is like the body is this thing which is there for a while eh? Yeah, we have the body for, I don't know, you know, however long, say 70 years or whatever, but as we go along, it's constantly changing, always moving from one state to another one. Sometimes being thin, sometimes being not so thin, sometimes being young, then getting old. Yeah, it's always moving from one state to the next one. And the more you hold on to your idea of what your body is like, the more difficult it's going to be to kind of deal with that uh, constant shifting of the shape of the body Yeah, you, it's, uh, whatever that is. Uh. So, uh, this is kind of the idea behind this. Uh, it's interesting, the Buddha, one of the suttas, also found in the Sangyutta Nikaya, the Buddha talks about uh, the body and he compares it to the mind. And he says that if you should take anything uh, as yourself, you should take the body as a self rather than the mind. Uh, because the body, at least, it is reasonably stable just like a lump of foam is reasonably stable, we'll see in a second that some of these other the mental factors are far more illusory and far more subject to impermanence than the lump of foam. Yeah? This is kind of stability compared to the other things. Uh, so you can imagine how unstable these other things are. Yeah? Yeah, lump of foam. So uh, the body is there for a while. So if you take anything as yourself, you should take the body as yourself uh, because the mind is always changing, always moving around. Uh, but of course the reality is that we tend to take if anything we take the mind as a self because the mind is much closer to us than the body. We can see that the body is always changing the body is always you know dying it's obvious but the mind is very very uh, close to us and it is one thing that has always been there uh, in in one way or another and it's much more difficult to see the mind as uh, a non-self than it is to see the body. Uh, so the body is there for a long, quite a long period of time, eh? and this is a very different approach that you see in the suttas, that you see in other aspects of Buddhism. Eh? Some, some, you know, sometimes in the abhidhamma they talk about things always coming and going, always changing. Eh? But in the suttas, as the body is considered stable, lasting for eighty years even or hundred years. Eh? It's a different approach, different way of of looking at these things, eh? and uh, uh, so. Um, Again, sometimes when you read the suttas, you get a slightly different flavor of what the Buddha taught, and when you read later texts, such as commentaries and abhidhammas and what, whatever they may be. Yeah. So that is the uh, idea of the body, yeah, this lump of foam, and eventually the foam disappears altogether, all the bubbles in the foam, they kind of uh, disappear, and eventually you die and pass away. And of course that is what is meant. And then you pick up a new lump of foam in your next life. <laughs> <laughs> Is that a good idea picking up all these lumps of foam all the time i don't know it's <laughs> so then we have these little uh the some of the words always the words that are used in these uh, similes are important yeah it's it's very interesting one of the things that you see in the suttas the buddha always talks about his uh, teaching being savyanjana savyanjana and saatta is one of the characteristics of the word of the buddha and Vyanjana means expression or, or wording of the sutta. sa atta means the purpose or the goal. Yeah, So they have a real goal in a sense. But they also have the expression is very purposeful with the suttas. So when you read the suttas, it's actually very useful to remember that every word usually has a meaning. It has a place there. It is said for a specific purpose. Nothing is really random with the way Buddha explains things. And this is one of the big differences between the word of the Buddha and an ordinary Dhamma talk. You listen to an ordinary Dhamma talk, it may be very unstructured, it may be a bit random, it may be very idiosyncratic depending on the particular experience of that person who is giving the talk. But the word of the Buddha is very consistent. Everything is integrated into one big picture and everything has meaning. So for this reason it's very useful to kind of investigate these teachings quite carefully here. Of course, you also have to remember that the suttas are two and a half thousand years old, so sometimes the wording has not been preserved entirely intact. Yeah, It's not verbatim what the Buddha taught very often, but uh, still there is a lot there which remains. And this is one of the fascinating things by when you do a comparative study of the suttas in different languages. yeah, you take. It's actually quite astonishing. For those of you not aware of this, you take... Uh, the Pali sutta, uh, you translate it into English, uh, yeah, this Pali suttas go back, you know, almost back to the time of the Buddha, basically to the time of the Buddha, and then you take a uh, sutta, translated into some other language, and the most common language is Chinese, because uh, uh, most of the suttas exist in Chinese translation. Uh, and you take that Chinese translation, which comes from a different school of Buddhism, uh, you translate the same passage, uh, because the suttas exist in parallel in these various languages, uh, you translate it, and you look at them, and sometimes you can barely tell the difference. Uh, isn't that kind of astonishing? These are schools that separated 2,300 years ago. Uh, that's when you had the most biggest division of schools in early Buddhism, uh, around the time of Ashoka, or shortly after. Uh, you had the Sarvastivadan tradition going to the north of India. It was uh, The stronghold of Sarvastivada was what is now Kashmir, Afghanistan, pa- northern Pakistan, that area. It's called Gandhara in those days. Uh, and uh, then, so it was at that time, and then the other school of Buddhism, which of course is now Theravada, went to Sri Lanka. Yeah, that's all of this happened around the time of Ashoka through his missionary activities and all of that. And that is a long distance between Kashmir and Sri Lanka, it's about 3,000 kilometers or something. Very difficult to have much, you don't have much communication between these areas. And then they, the 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 tradition that was in Sarvastivada then followed the Silk Road. Yeah, it went north, uh, uh, north in, into Afghanistan, and following along the Silk Road, which was an ancient trade route between uh, Europe and China, from the you know going back to the ancient Greeks and all of that, uh, and then following the caravans into China uh, and then bringing. The, uh, chi- the Indian language to China, and then it was translated when it got to China into ancient Chinese, or I think it's called Middle Chinese or something like that. And you have to be a, a bit of a specialist in Chinese to be able to read these ancient uh, And Then you take that ancient Chinese, uh, it translated it back into English, uh, and you compare it with the translation of the Pali, and lo and behold, it looks almost exactly the same. Uh, isn't that kind of astonishing uh, it's almost unbelievable, isn't it? Such ancient texts. Uh. And what that shows you, it shows you that the monastic community, and the whole Buddhist community, was extremely conservative. Uh. They realized that they had something of extreme value in their hands, uh, something that would kind of be helpful for... Uh, large number of generations into the future, in different cultures and different places. Uh, it's only now, really, that Buddhism is a completely international religion. It f- exists everywhere in this world, pretty much. Uh, yeah, And that was because of that conservatism of those early schools that allowed that Dhamma to be preserved in this way. Uh, it shows you the extreme conservatism with uh, at that time. Uh, and this is really nice to know that, because what it means is that you can feel fairly sure that what we have now is indeed the word of the Buddha. So it's very, very useful. So coming back to where I started, what that means is that if we have, to some places we actually have verbatim, almost verbatim, anyway, many not quite verbatim, but close to that, then again, every word counts. Uh, you start to read the word of the Buddha in a different way, Yeah, if you know it is maybe directly from the Buddha. And also, if you know, as I mentioned before, that the Buddha, he had also us in mind when he gave these suttas. Yeah? If he's thinking of us, well, then you kind of uh, think about these things, you reflect on them in a different way. Here. So let's have a look at some of these expressions then uh, that the Buddha uses more or less on purpose. Uh, yeah, so you have a man with good sight. So what is a man with good sight? Well, a man with good sight is one, someone who has practiced meditation and who has uh, reduced the distortions of the mind. Yeah? So good sight here, I take this to mean uh, the fact that you have purified your mind so you actually are able to see straight rather than see in crooked ways crooked ways the the defilements are the crookedness of the mind. yeah you can't you don't know up from down or left from right or black from white uh, because you are basically the distortion is so strong. Yeah? And then uh, not only do you have good sight, but then you have to inspect, ponder, and carefully investigate it. Uh, yeah and these uh, words that are used here, these are kind of fairly standard words in the suttas uh, that basically means to reflect and investigate. Uh, the last one there, carefully investigate, that is, uh, carefully is Yoniso. Uh, yeah. And of course we all know about Yoniso Manasikara, one of those uh, fundamental expressions in Buddhism. Uh, investigate here is, uh, some, is uh, the word upaparikati, or something like that. Uppaparikati, something like that. I can't remember exactly how it is spelled now. But again, has this idea of investigation and looking on something uh, it comes from Ikshati uh, which means to look look on her uh, yeah and investigate. Uh, and then Yoniso and this kind of brings back this idea of Yoniso Manasikara careful investigation wise investigation investigation which kind of goes to the source of things and sees things as they actually are one of the very fundamental aspects of the entire Buddhist path uh, everything which leads you forward on the path uh, is Yoniso Manasikara uh, yeah? including this particular one huh? and uh, so here we are looking at this uh, investigation that happens especially after Samadhi huh? yeah and then that is where you have the point to really make a difference in your uh, in your practice the idea of uh, reflection and contemplation is a very important part of the Buddhist path <coughs> <coughs> And it starts out by just reflecting and contemplating the suttas, uh, understanding the word of the Buddha and bringing that into your life and then uh, uh, investigating according to those suttas. And so looking at your mind, understanding your defilements and all of that. Yeah, a lot. It's actually emphasized quite a lot, the idea of investigation in the suttas, contemplation is actually a very important part of what the path is all about. Uh, and uh, sometimes we can take it too far, this idea that the practice is just like meditate sit down watch your breath Uh, it is actually much more than that Uh, and uh, if you 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 want a well-rounded practice uh, then uh, uh, understanding the suit as the word of the buddha reflecting on it balancing balancing that with meditation practice uh, that is when everything becomes nice and balanced and you know what you're doing yeah so and then of course you take that further and further and eventually that investigation is just a Watching is just an observation to understand the three characteristics, and that is what we're talking about here. Understanding the three characteristics. So, so when you investigate this care- carefully, you see that this foam, yeah, it is void, hollow, and insubstantial. Uh, rittang, tutsang, rittang and tutsang. These are words that are. Synonymous with non-self in Buddhism, there's nothing there. Yeah, they are empty. Synonymous with sunyata. Sunyata is this uh, word that you find a lot in Mahayana Buddhism. Yeah, it is used a lot in Mahayana Buddhism, but actually, it is also found in Theravada Buddhism, and Theravada Buddhism it has a very precise meaning uh, In Theravada Buddhism, it basically means sunyata means empty of a self. Yeah, it is specifically defined in the Suttas as empty of a self uh, or empty of anything that belongs to a self. Uh. So sunyata means that there's nothing really there of interest. Uh, yeah, there's nothing there to that um, uh, y- you know to, to hold on to. We attach to things, but we attach to stuff that is hollow, that is pointless, that doesn't actually uh, do anything for us. Uh. And this is this idea of emptiness, it's a void, hollow, yeah, insubstantial. Uh, Insubstantial substantial, uh, in uh, Pali you have this word sara, sara means like the core of things, uh, yeah, Dhammasara monastery in Perth is the core of the Dhamma, if you like, yeah? something which has an essence, is, is, is essential, uh, like ha- like wood, uh, if you have the heart, the heart wood, yeah, Dhammasara, heart wood at the, at the core of the wood. Uh. But uh, in uh, uh, there is no such core in a human being. Yeah? yeah, if you look for the core, if you look for the hardwood, uh, it's not there. It's empty inside. Uh, there's nothing. There's not nothing essential there. Uh, there's nothing that kind of. There's not inherently existing entity inside of you, which is the final you. Uh, yeah, and this is kind of this is revolutionary in uh, in the world of religion and the world of spirituality. This is what exactly what makes Buddhism so different from anything else. Uh, uh, the Buddha specifically says this in the, one of the suttas, the um, uh, Chula Sihanada Sutta, uh, Majin number 11. And the question is, what is the difference between uh, the Dhamma and other teachings? Uh, and this is uh, exactly the difference. There are many other things that are similar. Yeah, If you look at the religions around the world, they have a lot of things in common. Uh, but there are some things that are different. Uh, and this is one of those important things is' the idea to be able to distinguish and discriminate a little bit uh, I got an email from someone recently and and says I should talk about discrimination <laughs> i think I think she's here today, so I'm not going to point point anyone out but <laughs> And uh, it's true, yeah. Dis- Discrimination—the word "discrimination" usually has a very bad connotation when it's used in society. It is used in ordinary society. We shouldn't discriminate against anyone on any any basis whatsoever, really. And that is uh, of course, in that sense, discrimination is bad. But discrimination also has this idea of being able to make distinctions. Yeah, we need to make distinctions between things, uh, and there are some things that are really worthy of pursuing and other things that are not worthy of pursuing yeah. so these words have multifaceted meanings and in this sense it is uh, you know we need to disc- distinguish maybe that's a better word to use rather than discrimination we need to make distinctions between things to pursue those things that actually matter uh, this is what you see here. These things are not worthy of pursuit. They are hollow. They are empty. They are they, there's nothing there to of interest. There's no sara. There is no core. Uh, and this is like the revolution in consciousness that happens uh, when you see these things fully to their core. Uh, yeah. What substance could there be to a lump of form? Good question. What substance could there be? Not much. Uh, so then you looked at form in the same way, and here you can take it that form is a uh, probably roughly equivalent to the physical body, yeah. I mentioned yesterday that form has many other qualities to it. There's many other th- aspects of form, like especially uh, sight, yeah, you see forms. Uh, and then you have something called derivative form also in the suttas. Uh, and that is all the kind of subsidiary things that come from the ordinary form, like the ability to hear, yeah, the the... the is is a kind of form the uh, the nose and these kind of things the ability to smell these are all derived from form they come with the same realm that's why when you abandon form through meditation all of the senses shut down as well they kind of come together so here you have all of these forms yeah past present and future so uh, you don't think about body in any, wha- any of these ways, internal or external, uh, whether it's your own body or someone else's body or any other form, gross and subtle. Uh, this is an interesting one because one of the things about form in Buddhism, it is not limited to the form that we have in this life. Yeah? It's not just this kind of bodily form, uh, but you can have subtle rupa, like the rupa that you have when you uh, get reborn as a devata yeah? or maybe a ghost uh, that is a different kind of rupa, but it's still rupa in a sense. Uh, so in Buddhism, the idea of form, of body, has many uh, degrees to it, many kind of uh, levels of refinement. Uh, and ultimately, all of those levels of refinement have to be abandoned. Uh, and that's kind of interesting. I, you know, in In Western philosophy, you have this distinction between mind and body. It's called kind of dualistic philosophy, where you make a distinction between mind and body. The body on the one hand and the soul of the mind on the other hand. And it goes back uh, quite a long way in, in Western philosophy. But in Buddhism, we don't have that kind of clear distinction between mind and body. Because when you leave the body, if you have an out of body experience. You still have a kind of body, but it's more a refined kind of body, refined physical form. Uh, yeah. And then you can refine that further. Uh, and it has all kinds of degrees and variations to it. Uh. and uh, So the, the, the body is actually a, a, a something which kind of transforms through to more and more subtle levels until eventually, when you go very high in meditation, you abandon it completely. Uh. So you, this g- you know, the Buddhist point of view is quite different, in a sense. And uh, for that reason, it doesn't really uh, fit into some of these kind of philosophical categories that we kind of are maybe use, some people are used to thinking thinking of. Uh, so subtle, all these forms, subtle and gross, have to be abandoned. Yeah. So even, uh, even though it's nice to be a deva, ultimately you have to give up that as well. Huh? Inferior and superior, hinangva, panitangva hina again this word meaning inferior far or near all form yeah this the point of all of this sequence here is that all kind of form whatever form that you can possibly think of is included nothing is excluded from this thing here and then you investigate this you ponder it you come out of a deep samadhi experience and you had no form the body was completely gone and then you understand when it's completely gone well if it is completely gone it must be utterly impermanent yeah not only is it uh, utterly impermanent when it's gone you feel happy you know the body is dukkha because when the body is gone you feel much better and because in a deep state of samadhi because you cannot even access the body it is beyond, outside of uh, all accessibility, it must also be non-self. This is one of the definitions of, an I, of a self. And, uh, the definition of a self is something that you can control, something that you have access to. Uh, yeah. If you can't have access to something, and this is the thing about samadhi, is that you have left the body so completely, uh, you can't even access it anymore. Then, by definition, it is non-self. Uh, there's no control over it anymore, it's completely gone. Uh, yeah? then it is non-self. So you understand also the non-self nature of the body at that point. uh. So this is how you follow this. uh. And then this is how you, uh, how then you ultimately find out that the body is void, hollow, and insubstantial. uh. Doesn't sound very good, does it? Void, hollow, and insubstantial. uh. So maybe best to get rid of this body here. That's what it says. Okay, so let's go on to the the next one. Uh, Suppose, uh, monks, that in the autumn, uh, when it is raining and big raindrops are falling, a water bubble arises and bursts on the surface of the water. Uh, A man with good sight would inspect it, ponder it, and carefully investigate it, Uh, and it would appear to him to be void, hollow, and insubstantial. Uh, For what substance could there be in a water bubble? Uh, So too, monks, whatever kind of feeling there is, uh, whether past, future or present, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, a monk, a nun, a layman, a laywoman inspects it, ponders it, uh, carefully investigates it, uh, and it would appear to them to be void, hollow and insubstantial. Uh, For what substance could there be in feeling So if you think that the body is impermanent, then feeling is way, way more impermanent. Like a single water bubble, it is ready to burst at any time, Yeah, and then it's gone. And then another water bubble arises in its place, and that too is ready to burst at any particular time. And uh, so feeling far more fleeting than the body, far more uncertain what's going to happen with feelings. And the reason for that is because feelings You know, the way the feelings are described in the suttas, uh, they are described as arising from contact. And contact uh, is the coming together of three things. The coming together of the, you know, if you want to have contact with the eye, it's the eye, the object, and then consciousness. Yeah, so you have to uh, see something. So you see something, this is the object, the lid. And then the eye looking at it, yeah. You can take my word for it. I'm looking at it now. You don't, you don't know, <laughs> but I, I'm actually doing that. So, and then the consciousness is the engagement. Yeah, you are conscious if you are kind of. You, sometimes you can look at something without really seeing it because you're listening instead. So you have to have the conscious engagement as well, and then that is called contact. Yeah, because then there's an experience, and that experience of the lid actually happens as a consequence. But an important part of that is that you have to give attention to this. Then, when you give attention, then uh, you you know you know what's going on. So, what what do I feel when I see this lid? Uh, <laughs> I feel it's, qu- it's quite nice. It has a nice shape to it. Uh, it's not. It's kind of the color is kind of not very a bit, bit bland. It's just white. Uh, it's not so interesting. Some of the lids that Ajarn Sarno has been giving me inside. Wow, they're really beautiful lids with all kind of colors. This is a bit more bland and boring. But it's a nice shape, yeah. So it's not good. So it's a kind of a positive feeling, I suppose. Uh, so, but of course, the thing is that you know, as I am watching this lid, I'm also hearing my own voice. So, what am I doing? Am I hearing the voice, or am I seeing the lid? And of course, what is happening there is a big there's a quick changeover between the two. It's not It's not actually happening at the same time. Sometimes you're seeing, sometimes you're hearing, but because it is happening so fast, it feels like it's happening at the same time, but actually it's not happening at the same time. And when you understand that, then you also understand how changeable feeling is. Uh, yeah, let's say that I. Uh, let, let's say that I, you know, uh, enjoy the sound of my own voice. Yeah, that's a bad thing to say. But let's <laughs> let's say that you you know you like the sound of your own voice, but you don't like the look of this one. Yeah, so you have a negative feeling when you look at that one, but you have a very nice feeling when you hear your own voice. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> what that means is that your feelings are kind of going from negative to positive constantly back and forth yeah and this is kind of how subtle that feeling is why they are like a bubble you don't even notice this usually in your life but that is kind of how the feelings are always arising and passing away depending on where your attention is and what you're attending to You can see that in your meditation practice. It's easy to see when you start to get peaceful uh, and you feel the kind of the happiness of the peace uh, and then suddenly the body intrudes into that. Yeah, you feel a bit of pain. uh, and Then you put it quickly back on the breath again, but then the body intrudes. uh, And again, you can see that alteration between, it's more easy to see then, uh, alteration between the uh, uh, pain, the feelings always changing, always being so unsubstantial and so uncertain. uh, and out of control. Yeah, that is kind of the point here. You cannot really control it, uh, because uh, uh, what we contact in the world depends on so many uh, causes and conditions uh, that is really out of your control. Uh, so um, this is the problem. Uh, so we try to control it a little bit by going into deep meditation. Deep meditation is the only time when feeling is fairly constant. If you go into deep state of samadhi, yeah, it can maybe last for many hours, uh, ten hours. Uh, you know. Ten hours of bliss—that's pretty good. That's about as permanent as these uh, feelings go. Actually, yeah, I guess if you get reborn in the Brahma Loka, then you can last for a few eons with happy feelings. That's pretty, pretty good. Yeah, and you go to the hell realms, and then you get a few eons of bad feelings. Oh, thats that's sounds pretty, pretty bad. So they can be, uh, you know, more or less permanent. But in usually in human life, they're incredibly varied, and uh, even though. Most of the feelings we experience are positive. Uh, there's always going to be a lot of variety. So there's nothing there to hold on to. Yeah. And uh, this is the weird thing. It feels like, you know, feelings are so important to us. We're always looking for the positive feelings. Uh, but the reality of feeling is that it is so incredibly unstable. And it cannot really be made stable. And this is kind of the point of it. Uh, and for that reason, you can never really find that uh, thing that you're looking for in feelings. Uh, and you, uh, ultimately, you give up because you understand the instability is so... is really. Uh, at the core of feelings is instability here yeah. so that is the uh the feelings and now we come to some of the remaining images here are are actually quite uh are even more kind of challenging in some ways and are, are very interesting for that reason here yeah. so let's go on to the next one here yeah. Suppose, monks, that in the last month of the hot season, at high noon, a shimmering mirage appears. A man with good sight would inspect it, ponder it, and carefully investigate it, and it would appear to him to be void, hollow, insubstantial. For what substance could there be in a mirage? so too monks whatever kind of perception there is uh, whether past future or present internal or external gross or subtle inferior or superior far or near a monk inspects it uh, ponders it and carefully investigates it uh, and it would appear to him to be void hollow and uh, insubstantial for what substance could there be in perception here this is really fascinating perception is like a mirage you know what a mirage is like? You know, you, you may be driving down the road on a hot day and then you, you s- it looks like there's a pool of water on the road. Uh, it's a very common kind of mirage that you see a lot. Uh, and then as you get closer, the kind of pool of water just disappears and there was nothing there. It was just the air that was c- somehow overheated uh, and it kind of gives the sense of there being something there when it's actually not there. Uh, and this is what perception is like. Uh, yeah. So when we look at the world, you realize that actually... That what we are seeing is just kind of some kind of made up mental image uh, that actually doesn't correspond to any kind of reality. uh. It all comes from the mind. The mind creates these things. uh, And when you really investigate, you try to find out what it is. Actually, there is nothing really beyond the fact that it is mind made. uh. And uh, this fits in nicely there. You know, there's one of the uh, kind of and well-known suttas in the Anguttara Nikaya 4 is called the Rohitasa Sutta and Ajahn Brahm calls that the sutta of the first astronaut in the world eh. yeah, <laughs> the, the Buddhist suttas have the first astronaut eh. Everything, everything. There's everything in the suttas, yeah, astronauts and everything like that. So, it's, these are very fascinating. And the reason why he's an astronaut is because this Rohitasa, he goes to the Buddha and he says, I want, I would like to find an end. You know, in the past, sometime I wanted to find an end of suffering. So I decided to go to the end of the world. In other words, the end of the universe to find the end of suffering. But surely, when you come to the end of universe, yeah, there can't be any suffering anymore because suffering must be connected with the universe. You have to go beyond the universe. Surely, suffering is gone Is that right? <laughs> I don't, I don't, maybe it kind of, it sort of, kind of, perhaps makes sense. Yeah, if you if you don't really understand what Buddhism is about, it kind of might make sense. But so you, and then the Buddha says him, and, and then he says to the Buddha, "Well, but I couldn't find the end of the universe. I couldn't find this end of things." Yeah, and the Buddha says to him that the end of suffering is not found through traveling. Yeah? Yeah, you cannot travel to the end of the universe. It's not going to work. And the Buddha has this famous saying that the suffering, the arising of suffering, and the end of suffering is found in this fathom-long body with its consciousness and perception. Yeah, here it is. Here that you find suffering. This is where you find the origin of suffering and the end of suffering. Right here, within your own five khandas, that is where it is found. And it's a very interesting uh, idea because uh, it means that uh, uh, actually it says the world is found yeah the world is found in this fathom long body the beginning of the world the end of the world is found right here Uh, and this is very interesting because uh, uh, what does it actually mean uh, that the world is found in this fathom long body well uh, it could mean a number of things. the first thing that it obviously means is that our world yeah the world that really matters is my world yeah i perceive i ha- my world is like this i perceive in a certain way i live in a certain way i have certain habits uh, have a certain personality and this it is our personal world that matters in buddhism because it is in the personal world that we feel suffering and happiness that's where the problem arises and it's that world that we have to deal with uh, yes yeah? so in that sense world means personal experience yeah, and it kind of makes sense, because what world is there apart from personal experience? Well, actually, there isn't very much to be talked about apart from that. Uh, external world, does that really exist? What is it apart from personal experience anyway? It's very uncertain. And then later schools of Buddhism, they built on this idea. Yeah? And you have the, in Mahayana Buddhism, or later Buddhist philosophy, you have the idea of mind-only school, uh, where the, basically everything is just the mind and the world exists really just as an aspect of, men, of mentality. here. Yeah. And that Rohitasa Sutta can be interpreted in both those ways. It uh. could be understood to be that mind-only is actually what B- the Buddha is talking about. Uh. But I think that is taking it into too much of a philosophical direction, and it doesn't really—it's not really all that useful, whether it's true or not. Uh, but really, what it means is that everything that matters uh, is our personal experience. That is our world, uh, yeah, and that is the world that matters to us. Uh. So that when you come back then to the idea of the mirage, uh, yeah, is if this is the world that matters, and this is the only world that it really is for us, uh, then it is created by mind, uh, yeah. Mind is what kind of makes this world be what it is. So what it means, if it is a mirage, our world, it means that there is a massive scope for change, yeah, for development, for looking at things in a new way. And this is the beautiful thing about this on the one hand if set things are a mirage it may feel like this is a bad news we don't want to live in a mirage but on the other hand actually it means there's a great scope for flexibility and for looking at things in a new way and changing our perception of things yeah so this is kind of the good news here so you know if you have someone you think of as your enemy you know that that is a mirage there is no actual enemy out there the same person would be looked upon as some one person but as a friend by another person as an enemy which one is true neither is true it's just created by mind yeah it's an idea in our head and once we understand it's an idea in our head we understand we can change those ideas and we can look on that person in a very different way and we can make everyone into friends and this is what we should strive for on the buddhist path we should really make everybody into um, we should have a. We can't really afford to have enemies in Buddhism. If you have an enemy, what you're doing is you're destroying your ability to have metta, your uh, your ability to practice the path in the right way. If we can die at any time, do you really want to die with enmity towards anyone? You can't really afford to have enemies. What other people do to us is irrelevant, but what we do to other people—that is where we can actually make a big change. So you learn that you have the possibility of changing your perceptions, uh, and then we, when we understand that, then this idea of developing our perceptions, uh, which is very closely related to developing your mind, chitta bhavana, uh, becomes this very important aspect on the Buddhist path. Uh, what we have to do. Uh, there's a very another interesting sutta which uh, uh, you find in uh, a, a few places. It's also found in the Anguttara Four. Uh, well, Venerable Sariputta is uh, teaching someone and he says, he talks about perception. Understanding perception in the right way can take you all the way to awakening. Yeah, Just by understanding perception. Yeah? What is it that we need to understand? What we need to understand, he says, we understand those perceptions that lead to decline. bhagya yeah? they sanya. They are on the side of decline. Yeah? Perceptions that are on the side of stability. Yeah, Things kind of remaining the way they are. Perceptions that are on the side of increase, in other words, improvement in your spiritual path, uh, and then sp- uh, perceptions that p- uh, partake of uh, uh, penetration, p- penetrating into reality, yeah, in other words, insight perceptions. Uh, these are the four kind of perceptions. That, and if you understand those four perceptions, uh, then you will be able to reach awakening. Yeah? Why? Because you will be able to guide your mind in the right way. And all you have to do is understand the perceptions of the mind. And then you'll be heading in the right direction. What are the problematic perceptions? What are the good ones? And then you guide your mind in the right direction. And this is a lot of what metta bhavana is about. Yeah? Metta is the idea of being friendly towards other people. The word metta is derived from the word mitta. Mita is a friend, mitra in uh, in Sanskrit. It's a friend, so it's meta can be can be tra- translated as friendliness. Yeah, we use often use the word loving kindness in English, but friendliness is another way of thinking about it. You're friendly towards other people. You see the good characteristics. This is a way of changing your perception of things, and because perception is a mirage, yeah. Sometimes people say, but if I develop metta towards anyone, everyone like that, if I always try to see the positive in other people. Am I really being realistic? Don't people have bad and good qualities? Shouldn't I be realistic about things? Well, the, the problem, there is no reality. Yeah, Everything is a mirage. You don't really know what you are seeing. Is it just your bias? Or is it you know someone else would look at the person in a completely different way? And when they, you understand that there is no underlying reality, the person isn't in this way or that way, they're always changing anyway, then you kind of, understand that are, it's not about seeing people as they actually are in that way, because there is no reality in that way. What the reality is non-self, the reality is dukkha and anicca. but it's not as if we can grasp a real personality. Personalities aren't real, they are changing phenomena. And when you get that, you start to understand that actually, the way to think about metta is not as uh, a, a real way of looking at somebody, instead we ask, what is a useful way of looking at other people there is no reality, so instead we need to ask, what is a useful way of looking at other people? And the useful way is is metta. Why? Because it leads to growth on the Buddhist path. So in Buddhism, we, it's better to ask, sometimes it's better to ask, what is useful than to ask what is real? Because in some things, like in perception, there is no reality. There is just a mirage. And because it's just a mirage, forget about seeing reality there. Reality should be looked upon in a different way. When the Buddha talks about and anadasana seeing things in accordance to reality, it's a very specific reality, the reality of impermanence, suffering and non-self. That is the reality you want to uncover. Huh? So you have to, again, you have to discriminate a little bit yeah, between where to look for reality and where just to look for useful way of, of uh, looking at things. Uh. So uh, perception is very uncertain very unreliable and uh, for this reason it is possible to develop the mind a lot and uh, choosing the right perception is a very important part of the buddhist path very closely related to thinking in the right way very closely related to right view yeah when you start to have a right view this is what you get when you read the suttas that will affect your thinking your thinking will affect your perceptions yeah your perceptions will then reinforce those right views it's like this uh, thing which uh, all the aspects of mind are kind of uh, intricately linked to each other in this way and everything builds up together so just by reading the suttas you're already kind of changing your perceptions a little bit and thinking about the world in a different way here so perception is a mirage and actually it may sound like bad news initially but actually it's good news uh, because it means we can do something radically and change the way we think about things Okay, let's go on to the next one. Suppose, monks, that a man needing heartwood, needing, seeking heartwood, wandering in search of heartwood, would take a sharp axe and enter a forest. There he would see the trunk of a large banana tree, straight, fresh, without a fruit bud core. In other words, no core. He would cut it down at the root, cut off the crown, and unroll the coil. As he unrolls the coil, he would not find even softwood, uh, let alone heartwood. Uh, a man with good sight would inspect it, ponder it, and carefully investigate it, uh, and it would appear to him to be void, hollow, and insubstantial. Uh, for what substance could there be in a trunk of a banana tree? Uh, so too, monks, whatever kind of volitional formations there are, in other words, whatever kind of will there is or intention there is, uh, Whether past, future or present, internal, external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, a monk inspects them, ponders them, and carefully investigates them. As he investigates them, they appear to him to be void, hollow, insubstantial. For what substance could there be to the will? So here we are getting even closer to the core of what it means to be Human, yeah, these are the things that we take to be ourselves in a very deep way. Uh, uh, the idea of the will. Uh, and uh, uh, the will here compared to this banana tree or a plantain tree. And the idea here of these kind of trees uh, is that they ha- don't have any core. Uh, they just have leaves upon leaves upon leaves and you unroll them and you come to the center and there's nothing there, yeah. There's nothing, there's no essence there. This is kind of the point of this. Uh. And so when you... Look at your will. You unroll your will. Look, you unroll this banana tree. You uncoil the will. And uh, the uncoiling of the will happens in meditation. As you let go of one type of will, you're calming down your mind. uh, And then you let go of another aspect of the will. Uh, Gradually, uh, the will relating to each of the senses as the senses disappear. Then the will relating to the mind uh, gradually becoming more and more peaceful. Uh, And eventually... Ultimately, yeah, you go into a deep state of samadhi, you unroll that last coil of the will, and you go into the deep state of samadhi, the will is completely gone. There's nothing left of that will. The last coil has been unrolled, and when the will is completely gone, well, again, you discover these three characteristics. You understand that the will must be impermanent, yeah? While well, if it's completely gone, if it has ceased entirely, well, that is the highest kind of impermanence. Uh. So clearly it is impermanent. Uh. Uh, it is also dukkha, because once you let go of the will, it feels much better than when you are willing. Yeah. Yeah? So even though being creative is nice in ordinary life, and you can kind of uh, use it in a, in a good way, as someone mentioned yesterday, in meditation practice uh, it is problematic. Yeah. You let it go, uh. And actually, you feel far better by letting go of the will entirely. Uh, uh, and then, also, it is non-self. It is non-self. Well, again, this is kind of the idea here of the hollowness and the emptiness of the will is because you cannot even access it uh, when you go into a deep state of meditation. And this is one of the reasons why people often get a bit worried in meditation practice. Uh, the stiller the mind comes, it can, it can feel scarier. Yeah, and the reason why it can feel scary is because you are gradually giving up. You are relinquishing things that are very, very close to you, uh, things that you take to be you. They may not be you, but you think they are you. And because you think they are you, you get you get kind of worried when these things become calm. Yeah, it's like you cannot access your will anymore. A very core aspect of who you take yourself to be is gone. Of course, it's going to be a bit worrying, a bit scary. Yeah. And this is why meditation practice can be difficult when you get to these deeper stages of the path. So that's why you do it gradually. gradually, 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 you get used to the idea of being peaceful. Yeah, The more peaceful you are until eventually you enter this alternative world where the will is completely gone. Bang, it's gone. And then you understand the non-self of the will. You cannot be the will. If you cannot access the willing anymore, you cannot even choose to will, there's nothing there which moves, then of course you are something else. You are beyond the will. And all that is left at that particular point is consciousness. Uh, yeah, consciousness with certain attributes to it. Uh, so this is one of the challenges of this path, is that we are kind of, you are gradually giving up things that you take to be yourself. Things that you are so much part of you that even the idea of giving it up seems scary and seems worrisome and seems seems problematic, uh, and you really the only way to see these things is actually to get there and do it, uh, and then realize that these things are a pain in the backside, uh, yeah. <laughs> so this is that why they are dukkha, and then you can give it up, and they are non-self, and they are problematic in this particular way. Uh. So this is getting very very profound now, but uh, you will already know that this is true to some extent. Yeah, you know because when you become more peaceful, you know it feels better. So you know that there is some problem with the will there, with the doing, the activity of the mind. Uh, you just have to take it further, huh? take it further and further and further huh? until you get to this unfathomable, fathomable bliss of the jhana states, uh, and uh, where the will is completely gone, and that is kind of the where you really fully see what is happening here. Huh? So keep on unrolling that banana tree and see where it gets you. Huh? <laughs> Now, let's come to the uh, the very last one. Suppose, monk, that a magician or a magician's apprentice uh, would display a magical illusion at the crossroads. uh. A man with good sight would inspect it, ponder it and carefully investigate it, uh, and it would appear to him to be void, hollow, insubstantial. uh. For what substance could there be in a magical illusion? uh? So too, amongst whatever kind of consciousness there is, whether past, future or present, uh, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, a man investigates it, ponders it, and carefully investigates it. Uh, and it would appear to him to be void, hollow, and insubstantial. Uh, for what substance could there be in consciousness? So, so this is where it gets even more Profound, yeah. This is consciousness. This is the thing that is closest to us, uh, the ability to be aware, the ability to, to know anything, uh, the ability to have any kind of experience uh, is what this really comes back to, uh, and it's here compared to a magical illusion. Uh, yeah, it's kind of fascinating. Consciousness is a magical illusion, uh, and. Uh, uh, bec- and the, the reason why I, I I'm not sure if I really fully understand this simile, it's very, quite profound but uh, the idea here is that uh, uh, it feels so real yeah. if it is anything that we are it is this awareness that is always there in the background, uh, the awareness that is there, w- feelings may be changing all the time, form may be changing everything may be changing but awareness seems like this constant backdrop uh, that is always there, always following us along, always kind of part of this but actually it is not really true because once you start to look at consciousness carefully you realize that consciousness is actually tied to each one of those experiences so when you have one kind of experience that is one kind of consciousness then you change your experience is a different kind of consciousness the consciousness changes with the various experiences. It's not actually a constant backdrop to everything else. If it was a constant backdrop, then you should be able to let go of everything and all that would remain would be consciousness because it is the backdrop. But it doesn't work like that. Consciousness is tied up with the phenomena that we experience. And with these phenomena go, consciousness also goes. Yeah, it is. It, it changes, it alters with the experience. It's not an independent phenomenon at all. Uh, It is a dependent phenomenon, dependent on all of these other things, uh, and it's always changing, and it always uh, uh, takes the shape of the object that it has and becomes part of that object. Uh, What we have is experience. Uh, You don't have different things like consciousness being one thing and feeling being another thing what you have is experience and that experience is a composite thing that is part part of it is the consciousness part of it is the feeling part of it is the perception it comes as one thing and that is really all there is that experience uh, it is, cannot be divided up into these uh, uh, discrete entities uh, yeah it, it comes as one solid blob that's experience uh, And that's how it how it works uh, So this is the uh, illusion, the illusion that this somehow is separate, uh, that it somehow is the backdrop that is always there. uh. Actually, there is no such thing. uh. here. This again is the revolution of the Buddha's insight into reality, uh, this emptiness of even uh, basic experience of consciousness uh, and how it is always changeable and dependent on other phenomena. uh. So you have to, again, this to see this, you have to, you know, really go very, very deep in meditation. And uh, it's rare to fully see this, because if you fully see this, uh, then you're going to be a stream entry. Very uh, rare in the world to see this fully. Yeah. So that is uh, the consciousness for you, uh, and uh, how that seeming, per- seeming permanence of it, the seeming backdrop, actually is not really a reality here. Uh. And then when you do this, then this is what happens. I'll just quickly read out the last part before we come to the end. Seeing thus monks, uh, an instructed noble disciple becomes disenchanted uh, or disillusioned or averse uh, with form. Disenchanted or averse to feeling, uh, averse to perception, averse to the will, averse even to consciousness. Uh, Being averse, they become dispassionate. In other words, you lose your interest. There's no more craving. Through dispassion, the mind is liberated. When craving comes to an end, then that is what liberation is. When it is liberated, there comes the knowledge. It is liberated. He understands, ended is birth. The spiritual life has been lived. What had to be done has been done. There is no more coming back to any state or to any existence, if you like, So uh, that is what happens when you have these kind of insights. So again, very profound and very deep, what is happening here. So there you are. That is just an alternative view of these five khandhas because it kind of brings out some other aspects of the khandhas that I didn't really mention before probably. And uh, so that's all for your uh, uh, just to reflect on. And uh, I just want to say again that... Uh, 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 don't worry too much about these profound things if they make sense to you and they are nice and you can kind of relate to them. That's wonderful, it's great. Uh, but it's actually quite hard to fully relate to these things. Yeah, You really need some very profound meditation experience to really understand what is going on here. So generally speaking, focus on the first aspects of the first noble truth. Uh, yeah, The idea of death, the idea of old age, of not being able to get what you want in this world. Uh, that is very often the most useful aspect of this first noble truth, uh, because it relates to every one of us. We can all understand what that means. Uh, these things here are more profound. If you can make sense of them, please please use it. Uh, but uh, don't forget the simpler aspects, uh, uh, because that is, uh, is often more, more useful. Okay, that is uh, all for now. So please have a nice lunch together, and then we'll come back and see you again at uh, 2 o'clock this afternoon. Thank you.